The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am James Birch, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins, the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Hello, Jim. Fine, thank you. Good, Good to see you. Uh, we are going to do one more show tonight on some of the uh, questions that we've had come in. And uh, before we start on new questions, we do have a response to one of our question shows already. And I thought it might be good if uh, you could clarify this point uh, quickly. Mm. And um, I'm not going to read the whole email, but uh, I'll read the pertinent part. Uh, with all due respect, Father Jenkins is mistaken that the consecration of Russia was properly done by Pope Pius XII in 1952. All the bishops did indeed need to participate. Um, and I, I think you wanted to maybe clarify um, what you said uh, to make sure that this person um, or anyone else maybe who watched the show um, was not confused. Well, I'm happy to see that the, uh, the lady who wrote that email agrees with me totally in what I said in the program, that Pope Pius XII did do the consecration. He made the consecration as the Supreme Pontiff in an apostolic letter. Uh, he specifically addressed uh, his letter to all the peoples of Russia, and uh, after recounting the history of the church in Russia, he specifically, and he said, most specially consecrated Russia and the peoples of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. But that I pointed out that uh, this is what Our Lady spoke of in 1917 when she appeared to the children. She said that the Holy Father himself, she said the Holy Father would have to consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart. And then she said that he would do so, but it would be late. Uh, but I mentioned that in 1929, when the time came for the consecration to actually be done, uh, Lucia related the words of our Blessed Lady that uh, what was expected was that the Pope, with all of the bishops of the world, would consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart. That's what was required then. And that was never done. And I made that clear in the program that we did on uh, Fatima that uh, what Our Lady said in 1917 did in fact take place exactly as she said it would, that the Holy Father himself would do the consecration and that it would be late. But the consecration that was demanded in 1929 was never done. That is the consecration of Russia to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart uh, made by the Pope in union with all the bishops of the world. That has never been done. And um, I, I didn't mention at the time, but I take exception to those who are still insisting that the consecration of Russia still be made. Um, well, but they don't make the distinction that it had been made by a true Roman pontiff already in 1952, July 7th, 1952. They ignore that fact. And they do not state when they're saying, yes, the consecration must still be done. Uh, and it must include all the bishops of the world. 
And perhaps they're leaving that part out because they realize that with the modernists, bishops throughout the world, <clears throat> it is uh, kind of a mood point right now to expect that to happen. But uh, the fact is that Fatima itself, Our Lady never did promise that uh, uh, the Catholic Pope, together with all the bishops of the world, would in fact make that consecration. She said at Fatima that the Holy Father would do so, would make the consecration, and it would be late. So our uh, respondent here <clears throat> uh, actually agrees with me, uh, that because I did say that uh, the consecration was made by Pope Pius XII, but it was not done with all the bishops of the world, as Our Lady said was necessary in 1929. But Jim, as you pointed out, uh, Lucia did say in 1943, when she was commenting on uh, the first consecration uh, done by Pius XII of the whole world to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart in the middle of World War II, and he also made an oblique reference to Russia during that consecration, but not mention Russia by name. Uh, you pointed out that after that, our, uh, Lucia commented that this was uh, not what God had asked for, but it nonetheless pleased our Lord that it was done, to the extent that it was done, that uh, as a result of that, our Lady said the days of World War II would be shortened. But then she said that now what is necessary is for all of us, each and every one of us, to consecrate ourselves to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. And we must consecrate not only ourselves, but our families, our dioceses, our countries, to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. So that is the challenge that is before us, and that's what we must all do. And, and isn't that interesting, though, um, uh, God in his uh, wonderful uh, taking care of us realized that if uh, you pointed out earlier that it may be an impossibility for the Holy Father now with all the bishops in the world to consecrate Russia because of the state that the church is in. Mm -hmm. But God has taken care of us by giving us a way to take care of the consecration because he wants each one of us to be able to do so. Mm -hmm. And now he's encouraged all of us to do so. So it's interesting the way that it, it kind of developed mm -hmm. um, as, as time went on. Um, God still it's, provides. It's quite wonderful. He still provides a way. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, to expect the modernists in the Vatican and throughout the world who have been appointed by them to positions of power, that basically the modernists have basically hijacked the institutions of the Catholic Church, to expect them to make that consecration now of Russia uh, all, all together, I think, is uh, simply uh, beyond, it's beyond expectation. And, and if they did, what would it accomplish? Um, so I, I think it is really a, uh, 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 hard to find the correct word for it, but I think it is simply a, a mistake at this point to be calling upon such a one as Francis to make a consecration. In fact, uh, not long after that march in which uh, he was uh, named the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo religion, right, of the, of the, of the, of the new order. Um, he said that he was going to uh, have a consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And in fact, he did have some sort of uh, gathering that was supposedly in the name of our, our Lady and Her Immaculate Heart 
no mention of Russia, no mention of consecrating anything to her. So it was a real letdown for people who had their hopes up. I thought at the time rather mistakenly because uh, uh, Francis is, he is simply the embodiment of modernism. He's like modernism incarnate. Everything that Pope St. Pius X warned us about in the encyclical of in 1907, uh, Francis represents to an extreme degree. Um, so uh, I don't expect uh, um, uh, very e even a scintilla of Catholicism to escape from his lips, unfortunately. Um, he, he's, uh, he's a man of the world, even though he, try, he pretends not to be. So in other words, um, I, I think those who are uh, still militating to have him and the modernist bishops he's named and he promotes to be uh, consecrating Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary are, are making a very serious mistake and misleading a lot of people. You might have even come across uh, an account of two recent bishops that he appointed uh, to head large dioceses in the, in the Nova Soro Church now. Um, and these, these, these bishops, I think, are emblematic of Francis and the church that he wants to found, because he's actually founding. Uh, he's bringing Vatican II to its completion. And um, he was very upset after this extraordinary synod of the family, because it did not go along with his liberalizing and modernizing and basically scuttling of marriage, the indissolubility of marriage. Um, he even denounced the bishops who opposed him as, uh, you know, lacking compassion and all the rest. Um, and he turned right around after uh, the end of that extraordinary, that, that ordinary synod that took place in October of 2015. And he named two bishops to take over dioceses. Um, one of them uh, who is taking over a giant diocese in Germany. He's taking over for a bishop who is relatively conservative. Uh, and therefore, because he, the bishop who had been there was relatively conservative, his resignation was accepted immediately. You know, there was no time period uh, to uh, think it over. Okay, So he was out, the more conservative bishop, who was uh, not willing to... Uh, let's say, betray marriage into the hands of the adulterers and the homosexuals. And Francis named to take over that diocese a man who is notoriously modernist, but very pro-homosexual. The man is even on record as saying that he admires homosexuals for the way they live their sexuality, quote-unquote. That is, that is amazing. Uh, for a Catholic, that would be. For Francis, it's, it's as natural as anything. It comes naturally to him. To promote people like that. He's sort of like the, uh, the Vatican's answer to Barack Obama. Promoting all of these revolutionaries and radicals into positions of power. But he's doing it in the, in the name of the church and in the, in the name of the church's institution. That that's, makes it much, much more difficult, much more um, lethal to souls. So, um, and the other bishop uh, he appointed to a diocese in Spain, well, he was already uh, reputed to be the Maradiaga, Mar 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 the, the cardinal who comes from Honduras, 
who is like a clone of Francis. And this bishop he named to a diocese in Spain is, uh, has been known as the Maradiaga of Spain already, like the counterpart, uh, because he's so liberal and so such a modernist. So th this is what Francis is doing to the church, to expect him, with these people he's appointing, to make a consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I think is really beyond the pale. Because it almost could be insulting to our Lord, uh, considering what their stances are, mm -hmm. which is maybe why our Lord in His mercy has given us the opportunity mm -hmm. to be able to make that uh, same mm -hmm. uh, consecration now ourselves. Well, I think that's not only an illustration, I think it's a, a confirmation of what you just said. Mm -hmm. That God is now saying what Lucia said in 1943, now it is up to us. If you look at the things that our Blessed Mother predicted would happen at Fatima, uh, wars and famines and pestilence and Russia spreading her errors throughout the world and persecuting the church. I mean, this all unfolded rather rapidly uh, after Fatima. And, uh, in, and Our Lady said that there would be a worse war than the one that was then in progress. And it was from the, the depths of that war, which we now know as World War II, that Pope Pius XII made that consecration. And that was how our Lord and Our Lady responded through Lucia, that now it is up to each and every one of us to do this, as though what, I, what you've been warned about in Fatima has already played itself out. And now, uh, the, uh, now, now we must make that consecration. Uh, all the Catholics of the world must do so. And, and so we have to promote that. We have to... Get that word out to the Catholic people who still have the faith, in spite of the modernists and their, and their modernism. We need to get all the Catholic people who can and will to make that consecration to Our Lady. It is, it is what our Lord demands of us now. Well, uh, thank you for uh, that clarification, uh, Father. And uh, <clears throat> I have a, um, a rather lengthy uh, email here uh, that I'm going to break into parts for us uh, to answer. Uh, some very good questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, the very first question on here actually goes to an issue that I dealt with, interestingly enough, when I was a young teenager. I had a Protestant friend who came to me, and the friend said, well, I don't remember what the conversation was about, but the friend said to me, well, you know, you're a Catholic, and I'm a Christian. And I, I must have looked at my friend kind of funny, and I said, well, actually, you're a Christian, and I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic and you're a Protestant. And so we had a little conversation about what exactly that meant. And uh, the first, very first question in our email goes to that issue. What is the difference between, or maybe a better way to put it, can you clarify what it means to be a Catholic and what it means to be a Christian uh, for us to begin with? Well, to be a Catholic means to be a Christian. Okay. Um, Catholics have true Catholics. I'm not talking about the modernists, I'm talking about the Novus Ordo. I'm talking about historically the Catholic faith and what we today would call the traditional Catholic faith is Christianity. It is the faith that Christ gave to his apostles during his uh, years of public life, those three years, and during the 40 days of his instructing them after his resurrection and before his ascension. And all of the, the uh, uh, scripture that, that recounts to us the events of those days and all of the traditions that have been sown into the church by our Lord's instruction 
especially during those 40 days uh, before his ascension, those are all embodied in the Catholic Church and always have been retained by the Catholic Church traditionally until this very day. And uh, that is why we will not allow it to be destroyed or taken away. Uh, in fact, the Catholic Church has retained what we call the apostolic traditions, traditions that were committed to her um, through the apostles by our Lord himself uh, during those 40 days of his resurrection to his ascension. Um, so this is true Christianity, okay? Um, Protestantism is a defect from that. It defected from that. Um, it is Christian only insofar as they claim belief in Christ. Although, if you look at the various, various sects of Protestants, and their, their name is Legion, I mean, there are thousands of different sects of Protestants. Some of them don't even necessarily believe in Christ uh, as the Son of God. So, uh, since Protestantism actually destroys the principle of unity in the church, uh, reducing um, the deposit of revelation to the written word of the Bible, and then uh, saying that it's up to each individual to, to interpret it for himself, um, that, that opens a door to a thousand different forms, 10,000, 100,000 different forms of Protestantism. In fact, what it comes down to is each individual is empowered to interpret the Bible for himself, so everyone is his own pope, and everyone basically uh, can interpret the Bible his own way and create his own brand, his own personal, uh, personalized brand of Protestantism, following Protestantism's very own first principles. Uh, so, um, it's, it's, when you talk about Protestantism, you have to kind of define what we mean by that. Generally, what we mean is... Uh, that uh, system of belief, we might even call it unbelief, based on Luther's principles of uh, uh, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, and with regard to Scripture alone, private interpretation. Okay. Um, now these three principles uh, that Luther has taught, uh, even, even to this day, have been somewhat rejected by Protestants themselves. For example, <clears throat> there are many Protestants who don't really believe that we're saved by faith alone. They don't believe that you can make a, an emotional altar call, uh, accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and then go do what you want. They, they realize there's a problem with that, uh, not only logically, uh, reasonably, but scripturally. <laughs> you know, Scripture doesn't really say that. <clears throat> and so they've tried to find a way that around that doctrine of Luther, which is essentially a denial of the doctrine. And um, they, they try to explain it away by saying, well, yes, faith alone saves, but if you, if you accept Christ as your Savior and then continue to do bad things, you just don't really have the faith, do you? That's how they try to get around that. Um, but we know for a fact there are many people who do believe, but they just don't do the right thing. They don't follow Christ. They're not obedient to him. They don't follow the commandments. And so, uh, faith alone cannot save. Bottom line, that's it. And uh, our Lord has made it very clear, and I did a whole program on the subject, that faith alone cannot save. Um, and the very idea is a preposterous caric caricature of 
of the scriptures themselves. Um, I mean, grace alone saving is another basic Protestant principle. And, uh, I mean, that can have a, a really true meaning. I mean, Catholics can understand that to mean that no one can earn salvation. God has to give that by his grace, you know. Um, and so uh, that can be understood in the correct way. Unfortunately, Luther did not understand it in the correct way. And uh, it was another way of his saying that there is nothing you could do, even by way of cooperating with the grace of God, to further your salvation. Um, Catholics believe that we, our cooperation with grace is paramount. And uh, Protestants, a la Luther, believe that it's impossible for us, we're too corrupt to cooperate with the grace of God, except except to do this one thing, and that is to accept Christ as our personal Savior. That's all we can do. Other than that, we can't resist temptation, and we're just too rotten. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, which makes nonsense of our Lord's words, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the Catholic Church believes in sanctifying grace, by which God not only justifies the soul from sin, but sanctifies the soul. And uh, Protestants don't even believe in that. That it's even possible. Uh, then, of course, um, they have uh, you know, the, the whole idea of Scripture alone, with private interpretation. And again, Scripture never says that it alone is the standard of every, in everything that Christ taught us. In fact, uh, Scripture tells us very clearly there are things that Christ taught that are not recorded in Scripture. But he taught the apostles, as I mentioned, during those 40 days. Practically none of it is recorded in Scripture. And what is there are the things that we as Catholics believe in that Protestants reject. Uh, that men on earth can forgive sins. Right? Um, and that Christ made Peter the shepherd. Uh, gave him the shepherd's authority. That is actually in sacred scripture. St. John's Gospel closes with those two episodes of our Lord's teaching that. And Protestants reject that. So uh, the, the whole Protestant basis of those three three ideas is uh, is simply untenable for real Christianity. One might ask, well, why are there so many people in the world who claim to be Christians and they're following these these doctrines of Luther that are not doctrines of Christ? And I would have to say because, uh, well, I, I think there are two reasons. One is because of the scandal that Catholics have given. Because although Catholics have the true faith, many of them don't live that faith. And when they do not live that faith, they betray that faith, they give scandal to other impressionable souls. And let's face it, St. Augustine even warned about that back in the 300s. Late 300s, uh, St. Augustine uh, warned the catechumens who were studying to become Christians in those days, look, you're going to go in the church, you're going to see a lot of people who are doing some very bad things. You're going to see sorcerers and murderers and thieves in the churches. And he said, don't think from that that you can do all these things and still be saved. And he said, don't make the mistake either of thinking that since there are these bad people in the church, that it's not the, the true religion. He said, uh, these, are like, these people are like the chaff on the threshing room floor, and they're going to be swept out at the end. But the, the religion is still the true religion. The faith is still the true faith. And uh, that faith alone will not save anybody who doesn't live according to it. So... Um, but along comes Luther, you know, more than a thousand years later, and he makes those very mistakes <clears throat> that Augustine warned about, St. Augustine warned about back then. Uh, that's the one thing. Catholics have often not lived up to the faith. They've often given scandal. 
Um, but the other thing is, uh, the doctrines of Luther are very attractive. I mean, just the idea uh, uh, that you can make that uh, act of faith that Christ is your personal Savior and accept Him as such, and, and you're saved from that moment on. I mean, no matter what you do, you know, uh, you're going to be one of those snow-covered dunghills in heaven <laughs> that Martin Luther talks about as uh, with the human soul in heaven. Uh, uh, no hell for you, no condemnation for you. you know? uh, people bought into that. Yeah. Very marketable idea, but it's a lie. <laughs> That's the only problem with it. So when you answered that, uh, you know, you're a Christian and your friend was Christian, you were being correct but kind. Because you could, if you had had his ear for a little bit longer, explain that you have some some concepts, vague concepts of Christianity that you believe in, but I have the fullness of Christianity in its faith and its practice, being a Catholic. Okay, and if you give me a, a, a few minutes, I'll explain it to you. Uh, well, that's another thing. <laughs> but uh, it's more it's more than the simple belief in Christ. And that's, I feel like to, to some extent, um, having known many good Protestants uh, throughout my life, they uh, have almost hijacked the term Christianity. And I say that because they like to go uh, in history back to Martin Luther and then skip to the time of the Roman martyrs, who was very clearly written of as, uh, as Christians. And they want to say, well, we were Christians like these martyrs were, and, and going back to the apostles and, and, and faith alone, and just skip the whole thousand years of, mm -hmm. uh, of history there. Kind of like the, um, and I'm not comparing Protestants to the, to the abortionists, but the abortionists don't like to be called pro-abortionists, right? Mm -hmm. They like to be called pro-choice. Mm -hmm. And Protestants don't like to be called Protestants because that means that they're protesting something. So but their whole religion is based on a protest. Right, right. And so, to some extent, it, it, they prefer to be called Christians and from a very, like you said, uh, mm -hmm. from the veneer, okay, mm -hmm. maybe they believe in Christ mm -hmm. and they, they can say they're Christians, but mm -hmm. well, if you get a little beyond mm -hmm. that, then it doesn't hold you, up. You know what's really peculiar is, uh, now we have to have not only Christians, but Bible-believing Christians, mm -hmm. like as opposed to the non-Bible-believing Christians. Mm -hmm. We have to, have to have fundamentalist Christians. I guess that depends on how they, trans how they interpret the Bible for themselves, as opposed to the non-fundamentalist Christians, right? And you start dividing and dividing up, and they have to start categorizing themselves. And this is what, I mean, Protestantism is based on principles of disintegration mm. of faith until it finally loses all faith. Um, and uh, as you say, you know, simple belief in Christ. Well, basically, what, I guess you could say that about Protestantism, that it reduces belief in Christ to the, is this, he died on the cross to... Um, uh, justify us from our sins, okay? To redeem us from our sins. And that's pretty much all you can say. And that's all you have to believe. That's it. And you're saved. Um, beyond that, I mean, what else he taught, what else he did, and whatever else, uh, even who he was. I mean, you can argue about all that. But just accept that one thing, he died on the cross for your sins, accept that, and you're saved. So when you say, yeah, reduce it to a simple belief in Christ, uh, they don't even necessarily all, all agree on what Christ means, you know. <laughs> but uh, that's what they've done to Christianity. But uh, that's not 
That's not the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Catholicism is. True, the true traditional Catholic faith is the faith that Christ taught. We can prove it, too. And I do think uh, from maybe some Catholics are, are thinking this, too, is uh, it, I've noticed a tendency in uh, traditional Catholics to almost be afraid to say that we're Christians because they don't want to imply that they are um, Protestants or, or just throwing themselves in, into that pot. And I always thought that was a mistake because, uh, like, like you just explained, Catholics are the only true Christians, and we have to stand up for that point, too, and not let them hijack the name and take it from us, because then we're not really standing up for the fact that what, what our beliefs, our mm -hmm. true beliefs are. Right. So. Well, I mean, the Catholic faith is the only true Christianity in, in terms of what Christ actually taught. That's true. And we have to insist on that uh, and not let that name be hijacked. You know, now, nowadays it's kind of fashionable to say, well, I'm a Catholic Christian. And, you know, or, or to, for Protestants to make that saying, you're a Catholic Christian and I'm a non-Catholic Christian or a Protestant, or I'm just praying Christian or I'm a fundamentalist Christian. They want to categorize all these different uh, sort of sects of Christianity or flavors of Christianity, you know. Um, but the fact is that there's, there really it can be no such thing. Either you follow Christ in the integrity of his teaching or you don't. Either you, you follow the church that he established, or you don't. But, but Protestantism actually denied the very concept of the church as Christ established it. And, uh, you know, we, we as Catholics, we still understand what the church is, what it always has been, what it is now, okay? And we understand that the church itself, the true church that Christ established, bears the resemblance to him. I mean, it reflects him, who is its founder. And we say that the history of the church in the world, the church that Christ actually established, will in many ways parallel his own life here on earth, because the church is the mystical body of Christ. <clears throat> we also say that the church he established must bear the reflection of the founder as an, as an artwork reflects uh, the character that, uh, of, the, of the artist. <clears throat> and so you, if, if Christ established a church, it must be as convinced that he is truly the Son of God as he was certain that he was the Son of God. But it must also be as firmly convinced that it is the church Christ established. And it cannot waver in that point. Right? What good is a church that says, well, Christ is the Son of God, he established a church, are we it? Well, yes, it, we're, we're, you know, we're part of it. Uh, uh, but we can't make rules, we can't say this is right, this is wrong, we, we can't give grace, we can't do, uh, we don't have the means that Christ had to sanctify souls. When Christ established his church, he gave it his powers, he sent the apostles out with those powers. So if you have a church, even today, that is uncertain of its calling, and that it is the church of Christ, then immediately dismiss it. It can't be any more than he could doubt whether he was the Son of God, uh, any more than he could, uh, you know, waffle on the question of whether he was the, sa the Savior and the only Savior of the world. The true church cannot waffle on these things either. If it did, it would, it would manifest that it, it is not the true church of Christ. You know, when you look at the Novus Ordo, you see that. You see this 
waffling on the question of Christ, whether he's a savior, whether they have to believe in him to be saved, whether he had to belong to his church, uh, the Catholic Church, whether the, the church is this big, big tent, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> amalgamation of different churches teaching different things and different practices, even contrary uh, teachings and contrary practices. Um, this is all to be found in the Novus Ordo Church. It's a, it's a, it's an absolute in, uh, unmistakable sign that that cannot be the true religion, the Novus Ordo. And insofar as they have taken their modernist faith or ideology and translated into a religion, what is the Novus Ordo, that can't be the true religion either. Modernism is not the true faith, and modernism in practice cannot be the true religion. And the very fact that, you know, modernists themselves uh, cannot state with, with absolute certitude and conviction uh, even the truths about Christ, let alone the church, is, is, is an infallible sign, uh, unmistakable sign that this is not the, the church that Christ established. And um, before we go on to our next question, I just want to go back because you were talking about the different Protestant sects. And my, my favorite now, though, is the, the non-denominational because they don't, be, they don't want to say that they're Baptist or fundamentalist or Presbyterian or Lutheran, but they're non-denominational. And uh, so they've created their own denomination. That's called non-denominational. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the non-denominational denomination. That's right. That's right. right. Okay. So that's the old saying that uh, <laughs> if, you, if you choose not to make a choice, you still have made a choice. Right? Uh, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so um, the, uh, our reader or our listener um, uh, goes on and his next question has to do with prayer. And uh, he says, Catholic prayer is almost entirely uh, scripted, whereas Protestant prayer is ad-libbed. Um, is it wrong to pray like this where the leader of the prayer uses his own words? Uh, why do Protestants spontaneously come up with their own prayers for each occasion and Catholics have a scripted prayer for almost any situation? Well, that's actually a very good question, as was the previous question. And uh, Catholics believe that the individual soul is responsible for itself and must answer to God and will be judged personally by Christ at the particular judgment. And that soul's uh, relationship to, to our Lord is the paramount question with that particular, each individual soul. And so the church says to each one of us, you must pray. You must pray yourself. Uh, for yourself, you must, you must beg God for yourself. And you must be able to pray in your own words, your own thoughts. Okay? Uh, the Church has said that uh, the Catholic people uh, have to have their own personal spiritual life and their own personal prayer life, expressing themselves in prayer. But that's not everything. With the Protestant, that might be the end of it. But Catholics understand also that Christ established the Church as a social, as a society, Okay, a society of human beings. And they must not only know how to pray individually, they must also pray corporately as a body, as a society, together, in unison. And not only that, but Catholics believe that Christ himself gave us the ultimate means of prayer. The ultimate expression of prayer is the prayer of Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. 
when he was offering himself to the Father for our redemption. That was the perfect prayer offered by the Son of God on the cross um, in the very act of, of offering himself as the sacrifice of redemption. A prayer of adoration, prayer of uh, repentance and contrition, not for his sins, but for ours, begging for forgiveness for us. Prayer of thanksgiving, prayer of supplication, begging mercy for us. Um, and so that is the pivotal point of all worship, all Christian worship. Uh, goes back to Calvary, that ultimate act of sacrifice. And uh, the Mass is that sacrifice, perpetuated throughout all of time. Uh, that is why all of our worship as Catholics centers around the Mass, because all of our worship centers around Christ and his sacrificial offering on Calvary. A sacrifice of his very life. Uh, now, this corporate prayer, or this bodily prayer, this, this prayer that we offer as the church, right, requires prayers that are, quote-unquote, scripted, <clears throat> that are uh, written. So some, some of the prayers that we offer come directly uh, from the words of sacred scripture, divine revelation itself. Others come to us from the tradition of the church, possibly going all the way back to our Lord's uh, teaching the apostles before his ascension. Uh, because the apostles came out of the upper room on Pentecost Sunday, largely knowing what to do. I mean, even before Pentecost Sunday, it was Peter who knew, we have to choose someone to take Judas's place. How did he know that? He was told that. He knew what to do. And later on, even after Pentecost, Peter was, was instructed, Peter knew what to do about choosing the seven deacons and what to do with Ananias and Sapphira, too, when they cheated the Holy Ghost with the sale of their property. Um, this was the, the inspiration of the Holy Ghost guiding him, no question about it. But also, Peter and the apostles were not left in the dark uh, on Pentecost Sunday just to suddenly discover and have it all occur to them from uh, the blue, what they were to do, our Lord, and I stress this, had spent 40 days teaching them what to do before his ascension into heaven. So that at his ascension, he would tell them, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and instructing them to observe all that I've commanded you. All that I've commanded you. Right? Those words are full of meaning. Right? So, uh, I mean, Protestants want to make it sound as though the apostles came out uh, away from the ascension thinking, gee, I, I hope the Holy Ghost comes and tells us what to do because we have no clue. <laughs> and so our Lord had not you know, given them any instructions. He'd give them all the instructions. And in fact, our Lord had said the Holy Ghost coming would not teach them anything new, but was going to bring to their minds what he had already told them so that they would have an infallible recollection of what our Lord instructed them to do. So, uh, you know, forgetting this, uh, denying it, uh, really pulls the underpinnings out of even an, a proper understanding of sacred scripture. Uh, and then it becomes a book of riddles for, for Protestants. Um, something to be argued about with fellow Protestants. But in any case, um, the... Um, the fact that Christ established a church 
um, means that we as individuals are meant to save our souls within the context of that church. And he didn't just leave us as individuals, as little automatons, as individually struggling our way through uh, to try to find a way, uh, the way to serve God and follow his will. Christ gave us to be members, a church of which we would be members, members of him, as St. Paul says, and uh, a society in which we would live and die and uh, in which we would actually rise again from the dead at the last judgment uh, in, the, in, the, in the state of God's grace. He created this communion of saints, as we know it, all of it bound by his own sanctifying grace. To, for that body, corporately, to pray, we need prayers that are exactly composed to express that faith perfectly. So that what we believe corresponds to our worship, and our worship corresponds to our belief. And that is expressed in the, in the words of those prayers. Um, so we do have scripted prayers. Uh, no doubt about it that go back many centuries, that are traditional. And they keep us clear on what the true faith is and, and take us back even to the times of the fathers of the church. Um, the Protestants determined to change those prayers. And uh, that is why Pope Pius V, St. Pius V, uh, did what he did in writing Quo Primum and saying, no, you have to use the traditional prayers. You can't use the modern prayers that, that had been invented by the Protestants in the 15, 1500s because they were expressing a different faith. Uh, now, the reason I mention that is because Protestants actually, they understand the, the difference themselves. They understood that in order to change the faith of Catholics, they had to change the prayers. And that was uh, the problem from the 1300s into the 1500s. Protestants had rewritten the prayers of the Mass in many places. And that's why St. Pius V had the, had the difficulty of knowing, well, how do I safeguard the traditional while weeding out these Protestantized prayers which have um, infected the liturgy and, and uh, degraded the understanding of the faith, changed the expression? Um, and, of course, his answer was to say, well, the, the Missal of Rome, the Roman Missal must be used everywhere, that they don't already have a tradition of Mass going back more than 200 years. In other words, before the Protestants began to fiddle with the prayers in order to change the faith of the Catholics. Protestants already acknowledge in their history that if you want to change the faith, change the common prayers. And uh, Pius V, St. Pius V, recognizing that fact, said, no, we're going, to, we're going to eliminate those because they knew what they were doing and we saw it, we, we saw it happening before our eyes and we're going to root that out right now. Um, as a church, we do need those common prayers we can pray together. As individuals, we need to pray also on our own behalf before God. So both are necessary. The, uh, what's interesting, too, is that... Um, it, I, what I love, one thing I love about the Catholic faith is how practical it is as well. Because I, I grew up and uh, there was no Catholic school that we could go to. And finally, when I got to high school, I had to go to Protestant school. And so I had to, uh, I won't say suffer through, but I had to at least sit through 
some of these worship services that they might have, uh, mainly some singing and then the pastor getting up and talking. And it always struck me that, first of all, when the pastor would pray, even though there wasn't a scripted prayer, it was amazing that uh, only even a few months into the school year, we all knew what was going to be said. Mm. Um, even when he would give talks, he would always give a talk and he would say the same thing, especially if he was talking to new groups. And we would always joke about it because he would always talk about how sin, and he'd take out his wallet and he would say, sin is like a barrier and you can't get to heaven. And you'd take it and he'd put his wallet on his hand and the wallet was the barrier to heaven. And we had the, his, his own almost scripted version of it down. But even more practically would be, they, they would say, all right, let's pray. And they would pray. And even though they would kind of say the same thing, it was hard for everyone there to follow along because the person up there is kind of just winging it. And they might be talking, uh, you know, maybe at a, a sports game, they might say, dear Lord, please protect us all. Don't allow, let us to, you know, get injured and, and play with good sportsmanship. And everyone can agree to that, but you're not really praying along. You're just trying to follow along with mm. what the person's saying, you know. Good point. Um, whereas when we pray as Catholics, when we say the rosary, when, when we're saying the prayers with the priest at Mass, we are all praying together. And then you can actually focus on the words of the prayer and praying to God and talking to God together as opposed to, okay, well, what is he saying? Is that, you know, okay, well, it's kind of odd that he said that. And then you start thinking of it. It really does throw you so that the practical aspect of it, too, is not really taken into consideration by Protestants until the beauty of the rosary and, and being able to meditate on God's life like that is so wonderful. Right. And as you mentioned, the meditation is the key. Um, you know, because one can't say the rosary like a parrot or a recording, but that's not praying. It's a lifting of the heart and mind to God that is prayer. And when you have someone who says, okay, well, let us pray and everybody bows their head, and then this person begins to say these things, claiming, well, that the Spirit is moving me, the Spirit is speaking through me, or whatever they say. And the person is trying to kind of take it in as it's being said, follow along, and then if he agrees with everything, at the end he can say, oh, amen, okay, you know, uh, yeah, ditto. But that's not what amen means to us. I mean, amen, to us, it, it means much more than Okay, well, I agree with what you just said. Uh, um, and um, it is true. You know, the, the reason why there is that problem is because they realize the need to pray together, but they don't really have the means to do so. So they have to rely on one person leading and everybody else kind of trying to follow, following along and kind of nodding ahead or yelling, Amen. Amen, brother, or hallelujah. You know, sometimes they'll do it. They, he says something they agree with, you know, intensely. And, uh, but they're trying to produce some kind of uh, corporate prayer where they're all united in prayer. Uh, but they never quite succeed in doing that. It's always this man is praying and we're all kind of going along with it. Um, but Catholics really have mastered the art of Praying as a body, whether it's uh, you know two, or or two hundred or two thousand, um, because we know how to pray uh, the the Our Father together. We know how to pray the Hail Mary together, both of them straight out of Sacred Scripture. But we also know oh, so many other prayers that have been prayed by Christians and saints for hundreds and hundreds of years that express beautifully the Catholic faith and reinforce the faith. Um, 
So um, that is really what it is to have a society which you know as a, a divine institution called the church and to be able to pray as a church. Well, Father, I appreciate uh, very much uh, your input uh, for these questions tonight. I know our readers uh, do as well. I have one more uh, set of questions which will be best uh, left for uh, another show because it's more of a topic and it has oh, to do with us um, uh, as Americans, what, what Catholicism, uh, how it influenced or didn't influence America, what Christianity and uh, America, uh, uh, how that has developed and um, where um, it began and where we are now. And um, uh, as well as the fact that uh, we can get into a little bit more detail for an entire show, I think, uh, on, on that issue. And, and it will uh, take a little bit from what you were talking about, um, that the church uh, as a society, because we also have the church uh, government and we also have civil government, and it's a nice topic for us to be able to tie in as Americans what that means to us here in our own country. Mm -hmm. uh, so appreciate uh, very much your uh, comments tonight. Uh, we appreciate all of uh, your um, questions to us. They are uh, very. Uh, we appreciate your nice comments. We appreciate um, the fact that you're you're viewing this and uh, giving us your feedback. It, uh, we take it very seriously. If you would like to make any comments, if you have any more questions, please feel free to send them to the email that is here on the screen. Um, in a, uh, our future show, we will uh, finish up the questions that we now have, and we also have a few other topics that uh, we would like to be covering uh, with you. And going back to the very beginning of our show, uh, I would like to remind you of the words of Our Lady at Fatima, that we must consecrate ourselves and our families to the Immaculate Heart. We must make sacrifice, and we must pray. Thank you.